And welcome back. You're tuned into Real People of Orange County on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are broadcasting live from the University of California campus in Irvine. We're streaming on the web at KUCI.org. We are always available via podcast, both on KUCI's website as well as Kimberly Martin's website. I am your guest host, Marie Stone. Kimberly Martin is out this week, but I'm always excited and happy to be in her chair. This show is an informative look inside the lives of Orange County's best and brightest. The guests on this show are all people who serve this community in a very meaningful capacity. Today is no exception. This is a show I've wanted to do and have been thinking about doing for a long time. So at long last, today we are talking about Alzheimer's. We're talking about a disease that affects more than 5 million Americans, not to mention their families, loved ones, and caregivers. Alzheimer's is the sixth leading cause of death in the U.S., killing more than one in three seniors and outpacing both breast and prostate cancer combined. More than 15 million caregivers provide more than 18.1 billion hours of unpaid care. This year, the disease will cost the nation $236 billion and rapidly rising every year. Uh, All of these staggering statistics I got from ALZ.org, but uh, I can be corrected if I'm wrong, which I could be. Um, aside from the cost and time, it's it's also just an incredibly cruel disease that you know just slowly sur- strips you of of the things that make you human. And um, so it is a topic that I've wanted to talk about. I found just the person to talk about it with. Joshua Grill, Dr. Joshua Grill, is in the studio with me today. Dr. Grill joined UCI Mind as the associate director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, education and outreach director of UCI Mind an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Human Behavior. Dr. Grill's research is on clinical trial development with a focus on recruitment and retention of uh, participants in clinical trials for neurodegenerative diseases. MIND, by the way, stands for Memory Impairment and Neurological Disorders. Josh, welcome. Thanks very much for having me. You probably want to go by Dr. Grill. Uh, Either's fine with me. (laughs) Happy to be here. Happy to have you on. So there's so much to talk about, but but maybe by way of introduction and, and kind of, you know, getting to know each other, you can talk a little bit about your path into neurology and how you became um, captivated by studying memory disorders and, and Alzheimer's. Sure. Well, I'm actually a neuroscientist by training, and I studied the neurobiology of aging to earn my degree. And um, after completing my training, I left academia for a few years and have a bit of a non-traditional path. I went and worked in industry and learned a lot about drug development and clinical trials, which remains uh, the focus of my work today. I was recruited to UCLA by an Alzheimer's disease researcher and a relatively famous one named Jeff Cummings um, and went there in 2007 and began my academic career uh, as it as it currently stands, and um, held similar roles at UCLA as I hold here at UCI, um, and then was really delighted to have the opportunity to join the group here last year, 2015. Um, this institution is really world famous for Alzheimer's disease, especially the neurosciences in general, but Alzheimer's disease here is is really a, a fantastic and outstanding and importantly collaborative group that I was very excited to join at the ADRC and UCI Mind. So Frank LaFerla, Carl Kotman, Andrea Tenor, Claudia Kawas, Ira Lott, the list just sort of goes on and on. So um, I saw a real opportunity to join an illustrious group, but also one where I felt like um, my work could take the next step and I could 
really see the types of things that I was doing applied in different subpopulations and and to have an opportunity to be a part of um, such a great center was was just a dream come true. So it's been just over a year uh, that my family and I have been here in Orange County, and um, it's been everything we hoped for and more. Very cool. And um, and you know UCI Mind and the ADRC I think um, have more than lived up to my expectations, and it's really been. Um, a very exciting year, and we've done, I hope, uh, great work so far, and I think the future looks really, really quite bright here at UCI, um, and, and in UCI Mind especially, to, we hope, make a difference, um, find ways to, to prevent or cure Alzheimer's disease, continue to learn more about all of these varying neurodegenerative causes of dementia, um, and and try to come up with prescriptions for keeping people's brains healthy and strong um, through their 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th, and 11th decades of life, because that's really where we're heading. God, that's a long time. <laughs> 11 decades. I have to lie down. <laughs> so uh, where are the other big pockets of Alzheimer's research in the country? Well, UCI is one of about 30 NIH-funded centers of excellence. So part of our role uh, is to collect data on people annually, and that data gets uh, shipped off, if you will, to a national repository where um, it really is is unique and important opportunity. So if I have a question I want to ask about how the disease progresses or how people's memory performance changes over time, here at UCI, I could do that with, with three to 500 people, depending on how we defined it. But because we ship this data off into a national repository, instead I can ask that question with 14,000 people who've been followed for, for years at a time. And so Alzheimer's disease is, is highly collaborative as a field. In addition to those national collaborations, and there are many like the one I described, it's become international for certain. And we, we partner with, with investigators like us at institutions all around the world. We typically attend international meetings where we share our work and learn from other people, and now have even begun taking on new studies with, with cross-border collaborations in place. That's very cool. That actually stimulates a question that I want to get to in a minute, but I, I kind of want to set the stage for Alzheimer's and talk about what it is and what it isn't. I, you know, we kind of put it in the bucket of Alzheimer's and dementia, and I, I'm not sure that's entirely accurate. So why don't we talk about kind of what it is and what it's not? Sure. So I think that when people use Alzheimer's and dementia interchangeably, about half the time they're right. Um, so we really think of dementia as an umbrella term. Uh, specifically, um, the criteria for dementia mean that someone has a memory problem and a problem in another thinking skill. It might be decision-making, it might be language, um, various other cognitive domains. And when someone has problems with memory and one other thinking skill that prevents them from living life the way they once did, they meet the criteria for dementia. Okay. So under the umbrella of dementia, there are many things that can cause it. And a best-case scenario for us is when someone has dementia that can be fixed. Um, severe dehydration, some hormone problems, vitamin deficiency. There are some occasions in which someone presents clinically with, with cognitive problems that affect the way they once were able to live life. And there's a treatment that is obvious in some cases that can try to improve cognition. Uh, unfortunately, 
the overwhelming majority of cases of dementia in this country are caused by Alzheimer's disease. Now, Alzheimer's disease is a very uh, specific diagnosis. We understand very well what is happening in the brain of someone who has Alzheimer's disease. Um, it's named after a physician, Alzheimer, who first described this disease in the early 1900s. Even in the first case that he followed and described clinically, um, he observed, after she passed away, some abnormalities in her brain, specifically abnormal accumulations of protein that he recognized as not belonging there. We continue to study these things that we refer to as plaques and tangles. Um, thankfully, we know a lot more about them now than Alzheimer did in 1906, um, but they do remain critical to the research agenda, and most of us believe critical to finding a cure or prevention for Alzheimer's disease as well. So when someone has plaques and tangles accumulating in their brain and they present with memory problems and other thinking problems, then they have Alzheimer's disease. And about 70% of people with dementia have Alzheimer's disease. Wow. Okay. And so when someone says, when someone uses dementia and Alzheimer's disease interchangeably, they are right most of the time because most people with Alzheimer's disease have dementia and most people with dementia have Alzheimer's disease. But importantly, there are a lot of other neurodegenerative conditions that can cause dementia. And, <coughs> pardon me, many of those have increased in their research uh, emphasis and funding, and, and that's also important. So, you know, we study things like frontotemporal dementia or frontotemporal lobar degeneration. Mm -hmm. um, we study Lewy body dementia. Um, it's clear that other uh, neurological conditions like Huntington's disease and Parkinson's disease that we associate with motor problems can also cause cognitive problems and dementia. People with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or Lou Gehrig's disease can develop dementia. So, you know, we have an increasing appreciation for the impact of other neurodegenerative conditions on, on cognitive function in addition to other brain functions. And so um, new things are being discovered literally every day uh, that sometimes link these conditions or reveal that something we learn in one condition can help us in another and so there, too, the international and national collaboration, not only of Alzheimer's disease researchers, but of all neuroscientists in this global community, is critical to our many missions, if you will. Yeah. That actually answers one of my longstanding questions, which is, you know, we, we talk about cancer, which is really kind of an umbrella term for a lot of different um, diseases going on. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a very umbrella term. Um, as is, I just heard this about Parkinson's too, which is more of an umbrella term for neuro. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are people who have strong opinions about these things. I have a friend who doesn't like to say Alzheimer's disease. He likes to say Alzheimer's diseases because yeah, he believes right. that within these 5 million people, we should be able to come up with subcategories. And, and ultimately, I think this is the way medicine is going for every uh, disease. Yeah. Um, you know, we all are eager for precision medicine to become more practical in everyday clinical care. I don't think we're there yet. There are some really strong and exciting examples of using genetic tests to, to select therapies. We're certainly not there yet in Alzheimer's disease, but to the extent that precision medicine is the way of the future, then 
then disease is may be true for a wide variety of conditions where we're going to have to understand exactly what is happening on the genetic, molecular, proteinaceous level. And then we're going to prescribe very specific therapies based on what we learn about the patient. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's unfortunately still some years off in, in Alzheimer's disease, but I think many of us think it's where we might end up going. Right, right. So let's talk a little bit about um, differentiating, you know, so that our, our listening audience knows when to start worrying, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, so differentiating between bad memory, between normal aging process, and between um, Alzheimer's and, you know, when we should yeah. get concerned. So I think the easy answer to this is to distinguish between normal memory and, and dementia. And, you know, when someone has real memory problems that, um, that interrupt the way they live life, um, that's, that's a problem that you want to see a doctor about. Um, family members will often notice that a loved one is asking the same question over and over again within a single conversation. And it demonstrates that something's amiss, that, um, frankly, that the person's brain isn't working the way it once did, that the, the structural and, and the function of, of particular parts of the brain that are critical to putting new memories in uh, is not working appropriately. And in many of these patients, and maybe most of these patients, um, the processes of pulling old memories out work just fine. Mm-hmm. But it's clear that encoding new memories is, is, a, is not working the way it used to. Um, so that's kind of the easy answer. When someone has these overt memory problems that are quite different from, you know, I can't remember as many of my grocery items as I used to, or, um, I, I walk into a, a room and forget what it was I was going in there for. You know, we hear that all the time and, and we don't think that that's abnormal or pathological memory problems. You know, as we age, we change. And, right. and most of us are recognizing this. Um, I, I know I am. Um, so as we get older, we see changes in our hair color or the amount of hair we have or the composition of our bodies to some extent. And, and our brain ages too. And, and we talk about this quite literally every day as researchers. Are we, are we handling this the right way? Um, do we need to have better methods for distinguishing um, aging from, from pathological aging or do we need to incorporate aging, the normal changes in our models of what happens in the disease in order to subtract that out and be left with only what is uh, uh, caused by disease? And, and these are very challenging issues for researchers. And in addition, so much of our research has been about moving earlier and earlier in the disease. It's clear that, that Alzheimer's disease is a long process. And we talk about the disease as lasting 8 to 12 years after diagnosis. But more and more, we're recognizing and talking about the fact that there's a process that builds up in the brain prior to diagnosis. And that could be a decade. It could be two decades. Hmm. Some people think it could be longer than that. So rather than a one-decade course, maybe we're talking about a three- or a four-decade course, only the last decade of which actually causes symptoms. Gotcha. And as we move earlier and earlier and we get more and more focused on picking people up as early as possible in an attempt to intervene when brain capacity is as great as as it can be, uh, that line between normal and abnormal gets more and more difficult to draw. Right. 
And so we think we can do that with research tools like brain scans and cerebrospinal fluid protein analyses. And there's some exciting work going on at UCAI looking at uh, proteins and lipid levels in the blood hmm. in hopes of developing blood tests. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very exciting time to be a researcher in Alzheimer's disease and a very exciting time to be a researcher in Alzheimer's disease at UCI. Um, but without those tools for the, the typical person who's at their house who walked into their kitchen and doesn't quite remember what they were doing there, I think it's, it's you know, it's harder for us to say what's normal and abnormal. We typically hope that people won't worry too much about those things because it is something that essentially everyone experiences more of as we age. Right. and But it sounds like it's typically targeted towards short-term memory as opposed to long-term memory. Yeah, when the characteristic changes caused by Alzheimer's disease are 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 typically going to begin with short-term memory problems. Gotcha. Okay. And and we hear as we age that there are things we can do for our bodies that, you know, you've got to pay closer attention to your diet, you've got to exercise more, you've got to do different types of exercises, and then you hear about taking care of your mind and you should do crossword puzzles and Sudoku and Mm-hmm. <laughs> Brain teasers. <laughs> Indeed. How how much do those, I assume those are good for you in, in terms of just mental, you know, typical aging, but I don't know if that's going to help you out in Alzheimer's or dementia aging. Yeah, so it's actually a, a, an exciting time in that capacity as well. So more and more we're learning that lifestyle is linked to risk for late life brain problems. Mm. And this recently has become um, even more pertinent because we've observed in this and other countries a very small but significant tick down in dementia rates. Hmm. Hmm. And all of the epidemiology kept suggesting we're just going to go up, 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 up. Hmm. And we will eventually because the baby boom generation has just started turning 65, the age at which people are at risk for Alzheimer's disease. We know that diabetes, obesity, other problems in this country are running rampant, and those are certainly increasing risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. But we also know that education is as high as it's ever been in this country, and higher education is a risk reducer. We know that we've had the advent of new therapies to control blood pressure and cholesterol levels, and both of those things increase risk for dementia. So these small declines in dementia rates are actually very compelling to say that these various lifestyle factors truly are linked to risk and can impact public health. And so I have a talk I give called Lowering Your Risk for Alzheimer's Disease that's mostly based on epidemiological and observational studies that tell us things like if you've had a head trauma, you're at increased risk for late later life cognitive problems. So we should all wear helmets when we're riding our bikes or skiing or doing anything that puts our brain at risk. And we certainly know that diabetes, hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, these are risk factors for having late life cognitive problems. And so we should work closely with our doctor to control all of those things. But now we also are increasingly aware and have evidence to support the idea that Eating a healthy diet can reduce risk. Making sure we eat fish on a regular basis, once, twice a week. 
lots of dark green leafy vegetables, lots of berries that are high in antioxidants, avoiding foods that are high in fat and cholesterol. Diet may be a, a meaningful intervention that we can all take in ourselves to reduce our risk. Getting a good night's sleep. It's clear that when we sleep, we clean our brain. And we may even clean our brain of the protein that accumulates in the plaques in someone with Alzheimer's disease. Wow. Getting physical exercise. I like to refer to exercise as a pleiotropic intervention, meaning that it does lots of different things. We know that it reduces our other risk factors like hypertension and high cholesterol and diabetes. It helps control those things. We know that the brain only weighs 2% of our body weight, but uses 20% of our blood oxygen. Wow. And so keeping a healthy heart and circulatory system so that we're pumping blood to our brain is important. Exercise helps there. <coughs> As we age, the blood vessels that supply the brain can actually shrink a little bit, and exercise can help cause sprouting of new blood vessels in the brain. Hmm. As we age, there are certain parts of our brain that actually continue to produce newborn brain cells throughout life, although the rates at which they do so decline slightly as we get older. Exercise can bring those back to young levels. Wow. And lastly, um, we know that in the brain we produce proteins called neurotrophic factors that are vital to brain cell survival and function, and exercise actually stimulates the production of these valuable proteins by varying populations of cells in the brain that we have actually tested and desire to continue testing as potential interventions for for people with dementia that's crazy so exercise really is um, a remarkable intervention and we need more studies of exercise to truly understand what it's capable of and how it functions and carl kottman here at uci is leading uh, a new national clinical trial that will begin any minute now, I looked at my watch for our, our listeners, um, in partnership with um, investigators at, at Wake Forest University, one of whom will be here speaking on Tuesday in the Barclay Lecture here at UCI, which people can find out about that on our website, um, and in partnership with the Alzheimer's Disease Cooperative Study, which is one of the networks of sites that do Alzheimer's disease clinical trials in this country. So, you know... Cool. Exercise is, is powerful, we hope, and, and Carl and his team are getting ready to test just how powerful it is. So mostly cardiovascular exercise as opposed to strength training or, or both are important. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard for me to answer that question because there are so many different studies that look at different interventions and not that many studies that compare types of exercise. So we've seen exercise studies that look at walking two miles four times a week, mm -hmm. you know, and then we look at perhaps more sophisticated studies that measure maximum heart rate and, and, and lung capacity and things like that and try to establish some sort of percentage of the maximum that's achieved on you know, a regular basis. And um, what I usually tell people is, you know, we're working hard to figure all of that out. And right now, something is better than nothing. Right. And we're all in a position to do at least something. And I think the more we do, the better. But you don't have to run a triathlon to get the benefits of exercise. Right, right. No studies on French fries and... Uh... Um, I think there are, and I don't think you would They're like the, the results. <laughs> French fries and alcohol. I'm waiting for those studies to come out and say, do more of that. Well, that... now there are some studies on alcohol. And true, right? one of the um, 
Most recommended diets is the Mediterranean diet, which of course does include moderate, but regular consumption of, of red wine. And, um, you know, it may be that alcohol in moderation is good for us. Um, Claudia Kawas, who's the principal investigator of the 90 plus study here at UCI, which is open to enrollment for people who are 90 and older, um, has uh, looked at what are some of the factors associated with longevity, i.e. living to be 90. And if I remember correctly, um, moderate consumption of alcohol was actually associated with, with longer life. Well, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting for that. <laughs> You are tuned in to Real People of Orange County on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are talking Alzheimer's today. I am privileged to be here with Dr. Joshua Grill from our UCI Mind Department here at UCI. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on at what we have been talking about. But let's keep going uh, talking about um, kind of ongoing studies of treatment, what what the most promising treatment programs are looking like um, to a deal with Alzheimer's, but also deal with with um, dementia in general. Are they are they pharmaceuticals? We've talked about some of the lifestyle stuff, but but what are the most promising treatment programs now? So we have um, a handful of FDA approved drugs for Alzheimer's disease. Um, they they exist in a couple of different classes of medications um, that vary based on whether they're approved in mild to moderate dementia versus moderate to severe dementia. Some of them are approved in mild, moderate, and severe. Um, we don't have any drugs that are approved for mild cognitive impairment or preventing Alzheimer's disease. The drugs we have work. They're approved because we did rigorous clinical trials that demonstrated their efficacy relative to placebo control. Um, and they help people. They don't do what we want them to do. They don't slow or arrest this disease, which is progressive in nature. Hmm. And they don't prevent people from getting dementia. They're not effective uh, for people who don't have memory problems. So we're very focused on developing and testing and getting approved drugs that can slow the course of Alzheimer's disease, hopefully stop or reverse that course in people who have dementia, and we're focused on drugs that can be started when we're older and don't have dementia to reduce our risk for ever getting it. And there's a lot of exciting work going on in both of those camps. So um, here at UCI, we are part of major efforts to test potential new therapies for people with dementia caused by Alzheimer's disease, including drugs that are injected into the arm and we are confident can actually reduce levels of plaques in the brain. Hmm. And what we're not yet sure of is, is that enough to slow the course of the disease? Mm -hmm. But there is a clinical trial ongoing at UCI now that if successful, the drug will be the first ever disease modifying therapy for Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. And that would be obviously cause of celebration, um, but really critical for our overarching goal of improved therapies. And it'll also show us that the target we're aiming at is at least in part correct, right. which is a major important step. Um, if amyloid-lowering drugs, which are the drugs that reduce the plaques in the brain, prove successful in people with dementia, many people think they'll be even more effective if started earlier. Mm -hmm. 
And so we are also now testing therapies in people who don't have memory problems in hopes of staving off or preventing memory problems from ever beginning. And the first of these clinical trials, and it's made quite a bit of news, and in fact last night there was a program on PBS Nova that talked very much about Alzheimer's disease and this clinical trial, which is called the A4 study, hmm. the anti-amyloid and asymptomatic Alzheimer's disease study. Um, that is taking it to a new level. So this clinical trial is trying to enroll 1,150 people, mostly in North America, who are 65 to 85 years old, have normal memories, and we test it to confirm it. And unfortunately, in the study, it's it can be challenging to find normal memory. If your memory is too good, you can't be in this study. If your memory is not quite good enough, you can't be in this study. Among the people with normal memories, we actually do a brain scan. And this brain scan tells us whether someone has elevated levels of the amyloid protein that accumulates in plaques or not elevated levels of that protein. And only people with elevated levels of amyloid are eligible to participate in this clinical trial to see if an amyloid-lowering drug can reduce risk for experiencing memory problems. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't know that everyone with an elevated amyloid scan will someday get Alzheimer's disease. In fact, it's probably not the case. We also don't know among those with elevated amyloid scans who do get Alzheimer's disease, which people or when. And it may be 15 or 20 years down the road before a person who's going to get memory problems with elevated amyloid does. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a unique group of people, I think, who want to be in this study. We're extremely proud to work with them. They're remarkable individuals. And we need more of them. Um, the trial is we're hoping to complete enrollment in the study by the end of this calendar year. Hmm. Okay. It's a three-year study, so people are, are agreeing to participate for, for a not short period of time, three years. Mm -hmm. They come to UCI once a month. Wow. And you can participate here in Irvine or in Orange at the Medical Center. Um, the principal investigator here in Irvine is Dr. Amy Pierce. The principal investigator in Orange is Dr. Steve Potkin. Um, both sites are doing a fantastic job of contributing to this study, and both sites need more people to enroll. How do you find these people? What are they? They just hear about it? Yeah, well, we, we try a lot of different things to uh, make people aware of the study. We go on... Um, radio. Exciting radio <laughs> programs that have ma massive li listenership. Um, there was an article in the Orange County Register about one of our participants in July, and that generated uh, a, a lovely response. Um, we go out in the community, and I frequently go out in the community and give talks about this study so that people can learn more about it and learn if it's um, something they would want to do. We have um, one of those talks uh, coming up and a variety of other talks coming up where people can come and um, learn about the studies that are going on, but also have an opportunity to ask questions of, of, in many cases, you know, fairly famous investigators in this field. Um, I would say that if people are interested in attending one of those events, they should check our website, which is uh, mind.uci.edu. We are um, frequently out in the community here in Orange County talking about what we do, talking about dementia and Alzheimer's disease, and also talking about what people can do to, to reduce their risk and make a difference in their own lives. 
So none of these um, pharmaceuticals come with significant side effects, or I, I assume people wouldn't show up. <laughs> All drugs have side effects. All drugs have side effects. And the ones we're testing are certainly no different. And if someone tells you a drug doesn't have side effects, they're, they're either lying or they don't know what they're talking about. You know, we look for drugs that are safe enough for us to use. You know, aspirin can have side effects. Yeah. Every drug can have side effects. Um, the drug that's being tested in A4, which is in cognitively normal people, was in large part selected because of its safety profile. That said, all drugs can have side effects. So part of being in any clinical trial is that before you decide to do this, you have substantial and ample opportunity to learn about the study, learn about the potential risks and the potential benefits, have an opportunity to ask questions of a physician and other researchers and, and get all the information you could possibly want before you decide whether this is something you want to do. And that's really important for a number of reasons. It's the ethical conduct of research. It's called informed consent. Um, but also, when people enroll in our studies, if they're uninformed, they may learn something later and say, hey, wait a minute, I don't want to do this anymore. Mm -hmm. And when people enroll in studies and then drop out, it actually can hurt our ability to answer scientific questions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I refer to Alzheimer's disease as the most important medical problem we face as a society today. And it is incredibly urgent times. We must develop drugs that can delay the onset of Alzheimer's disease because 10 million baby boomers are going to get Alzheimer's disease. You, you talked about it at the beginning of the show. We're going to see a tripling in the number of cases in this country alone. Mm. The, the debt associated with the health care costs caused by Alzheimer's disease can be in the tens of thousands of dollars per year for an individual family and from a public health standpoint, could approach a trillion dollars by the halfway point of this century. Mm. So we have to do something about this. And in this pursuit, we will test drugs that don't work. That's a failed drug. That is part of science. That is part of developing improved medicines. The thing we can't have are failed studies, mm. studies that don't answer their question. And if too many people enroll in a study and then decide not to finish it, that study can be left unable to answer its question, and that's a failed study. Gotcha. So we go to great lengths to make sure that when people say they want to be in a study, that we and they are confident about that decision because we need people not only to enroll, but we need people to enroll and finish studies. Now, if someone enrolls in a clinical trial of a new therapy and they develop adverse events related to that therapy, we don't want them to keep taking a drug that's hurting them. Yeah. You know, that's very different. And safety is always the top priority in these studies. But when someone enrolls in a study and says, you know, I didn't realize I had to come to UCI every month, that's a <laughs> right. different scenario. So we really do go to great lengths to make sure that people are, are going into this with full knowledge of what is involved um, what's expected of them, and, and, and also that we can't do this without them because we are all in this together. Right, right. Are there, um, are there pockets around the world of greater incidence of Alzheimer's? We've talked about the U.S. quite a bit, and I know you've, you've said that you collaborate with other countries. Are there places where Alzheimer's doesn't exist as much or places where there is a you know, surge of it? So there, there really aren't places where Alzheimer's disease doesn't exist, except for places where people don't live to be old enough to get it. Right. 
It's a disease that knows no ethnic, racial, or socioeconomic bounds. If you live to be in your 60s, 70s, or 80s, you're at risk. And there are places where this problem is um, more damaging than other places, and it's the places that aren't equipped to deal with it. Hmm. You know, and we do certainly see some differences globally, um, and and how much of that is due to culture versus biology is an open topic. Um, you know, the other aspect of this disease that, again, you alluded to at the beginning of the show was that this is a disease that never affects just one person. Mm-hmm. You know, we have 5 million patients in this country and some 15 million people providing care to them. Mm-hmm. And in places like China, where the one-child law has been instituted, there's a great concern that there will be inadequate numbers of, of caregivers for the growing numbers of patients with dementia. In fact, in the first time in our history as a human population in this world, there are more old than young people. Wow. Scary. Well, it's, it is scary from the standpoint of the need for caregivers, but it's also terribly exciting. Modern medicine and science have helped increase lifespan steadily for a long time now. And it's really um, something that we should be celebrating, that we have really changed what old age is. And life expectancy has continued to increase, and and that's wonderful. But it does bring these new challenges of age-associated disorders that we can and will deal with. I heard somewhere that it is common for the Alzheimer's patient to outlive the caregiver because the stress on the caregiver is so great that they often get worn down by it and um, and leave before the Alzheimer's patient does. I don't know if that's accurate or not. Well, we, we do know that caregiving is an incredible source of stress. And caregivers are under financial stress, they're under physical stress, and of course they're under emotional stress. And we know that caregivers are at increased risk for adverse health outcomes themselves, in part because they often don't have time to go to the doctor for themselves. They're too busy taking their loved one to the doctor and providing care. And Alzheimer's disease is ultimately a disease that puts a person in need of 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week care. And so, you know, we're very lucky in Orange County to have multiple organizations that exist to provide resources for caregivers, and we urge all people who are providing care to seek out those resources and ca- and take advantage of them, because this is uh, an incredible burden that families are under, and they have to do everything they can to, to take care of themselves as, as they are already doing such amazing jobs of providing care for their family members. Right, indeed, indeed. You're tuned in to Real People of Orange County on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are broadcasting live from the University of California in Irvine, and I am your guest host, Marie Stone. Honored to be joined by Dr. Joshua Grill, also from UCI, UCI Mind, and we are talking about Alzheimer's and dementia. I had heard um, some promising lecture that you had given recently on music and Alzheimer's. Then I didn't hear anything else, so tell us a little bit more about that. Well, um... It's a bit of a hobby, <laughs> um, so I, I do. We like um, music here. I do KCI. sometimes <laughs> uh, get requested to give a lecture on the neuroscience of music and dementia, 
And the neuroscience of music is a, a fascinating topic. And you know, the fact that we um, have music and that it's endured evolution is in and of itself, I think, incredible. Um, you know, I, in the, in the uh, lecture, I show a photo taken from an article by Robert Zatori of the Montreal Neurologic Institute um, of a vulture radius that has holes drilled in it and a, a mouthpiece so that it could serve as a flute. Wow. And it's been carbon dated back 30,000 years. Wow. So we know that when we were painting on caves, we had music. And what is it about music that has made it persist? Um, so it is a it is a fun topic, um, and you know I go into why uh, music persists through evolution, and I believe it's because of the way music activates the brain, which is unique to the way spoken word or even a series of non-melodic tones activates the brain. Mm -hmm. It activates a distributed network of, of brain structures. It um, affects the brain in a bihemispheric way, whereas most mm -hmm. language, for example, really is unihemispheric. Mm. Um, and we know that many dementia patients um, continue to not only appreciate and enjoy music through late in their disease, but they they have a remarkable intact memory for music mm. when other memory is is highly dysfunctional. And why is that? And why is that? Yeah. Well, I mean, there are some studies that have begun to try to address that. And um, one recent study tried to map in the brain what parts of the brain were important for long-term music memory mm -hmm. and then they overlaid that map with the atrophy map of an alzheimer's brain and so the particular parts of the brain that are most susceptible to to volumetric loss in the disease didn't seem to be if inclusive of these brain regions that are critical to long-term music memory interesting but the anecdotes are wonderful of patients who um, have severe amnesia and still can go around performing in, in singing chorales or still play instruments. And, and um, we're interested in, in taking advantage of this phenomenon by trying to bring music to more dementia patients, especially patients in nursing homes. Mm -hmm. And in the past, I've partnered with a nonprofit organization out of New York called Music in Memory, which is a fantastic organization that really exists for this purpose to bring music to people in nursing homes. And, and really, they deserve all the credit. And I just am a guy who thinks it's a neat topic and wants to help them. Um, so we are thinking and working towards starting a program at UCI Mind to collect iPods as donations that we can then turn around and donate to nursing homes, board and cares, and assisted living facilities. And then I do have a pet hypothesis about some of the neurochemical aspects of what's happening in the brain of someone when they listen to especially pleasurable music and whether that could have benefits um, on things like behavioral symptoms and, and quality of life for, for especially moderate to severely demented patients. Mm -hmm. um, and we're, we're very eager to test some of these hypotheses. Unfortunately, uh, the studies that I come up with with colleagues here at UCI are, are all kind of expensive to do. And so, um, and so short of funding to do those studies right now, we're going to continue the, the important charitable work of trying to collect iPods and, and donate them to, 
to organizations that provide care, and um, and we'll keep spreading the word about this topic because it is it is fun and and I do believe it can uh, can affect the quality of life for for dementia patients. Oh, absolutely! It's hard not to be sitting here surrounded by forty five thousand albums and not talk about music because. We love music here. And there's no other explanation for being able to sit down 20 years later and remember the lyrics to every horrible 70s song I grew up with. (laughs) And hopefully the good ones, too. Yeah, and hopefully the good ones, too. (laughs) But it does get in there in a visceral way that other stuff doesn't. So I I do think there's promising research that's got to be going on there. Are there other misconceptions or, or things that people get wrong about this disease that you hear a lot? That Boy, um, there are a lot. I'm sure there are. Um, you know, we still deal with some of the things that have sort of become seemingly ingrained in our culture, um, like whether aluminum causes Alzheimer's disease. It does not. Okay. You know, there are neurodegenerative diseases that are um, very clearly linked to external environmental exposures, and Alzheimer's disease does not seem to be one of them. Um, so aluminum in the drinking water, aluminum in deodorant, um, these things do not seem to be linked to who does and does not get the disease. Um, You know, other than that, um, a lot of people either misperceive or assume that the FDA-approved drugs are capable of slowing the course of this disease, Mm -hmm. and that is also not true. These drugs help. They reduce symptoms a little bit, but whether you're on the drug or not, the disease seems to progress at the same rate. And the real danger in that is that in the mild stages of this disease, people may think, well, we've got a drug that slows what's going on, and it's not that bad. Mm -hmm. And that may be part of the rationale for not participating in research, like clinical trials of new drugs. And um, the drugs that we're testing now, for the most part, are ones that we hope will slow the course of the disease. So they're quite distinct from the drugs that we have available. In fact, in almost all the trials we do for people with dementia, you can be on the FDA-approved drugs and still participate in the study because we're so conscious of the need for drugs that do something else. Right. And so that misconception, as well as this idea that in the early stages, it's not that bad. Mom has some memory problems, but it's not that bad. Right. Um, the reality is that this disease is different for everyone. It doesn't happen the same or at the same rate in everyone, but it almost invariably does get worse. And so I think that misconception could reduce some of the motivation for some patients and families to enroll in research. And and we spend considerable effort trying to make people understand this because research is always voluntary, but we really need more people to participate. And you know, one of the most common barriers to medical advances is slow rates of recruiting to studies. Mm-hmm. And to do a three-year study, if it takes three years to recruit the population, then that three-year study is going to take six or seven years. Right. If you could enroll the entirety of the study in six months, then your three-year study should only take about four years. And that's what we need. You know, we need these rapidly expeditious scientific studies to occur so that we can answer as many questions as fast as possible and rid the world of this disease. Right. That's what we want to do. The only comfort from this is knowing that there's nothing, that early detection of it would not have helped you. So whereas you find cancer late and you think, oh, if I would have found this a little earlier, 
something could have been done. That's not the case with Alzheimer's. Well, it's not today, but I hope it is tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, we really do think that early intervention will ultimately be critical, but only when we have drugs that slow the course of the disease. So once you have drugs that slow the course of the disease, early intervention will be absolutely important. And that's why it may be that someday we treat Alzheimer's disease like cholesterol. Mm -hmm. You go get some sort of test, be it a blood test or a brain scan, you know, starting at age 55, for example. And once we see a little uptick on the proteins that we're focused on, maybe we start you on a drug to lower them. Mm -hmm. And instead of preventing heart attack, we're trying to prevent brain attack. Right, right. Um, We're not there yet, but we do think early intervention today is still important. Not so much from a pharmacological standpoint, but, you know, knowing what's going on and having time to make a good plan. Mm-hmm. Because as we've talked about, this is a disease that affects the whole family. It's a progressive disease. There is a lot that families need to undertake when you have this diagnosis. And the more time you have to do that and the more involved the person with the disease can be, the better. And so we certainly think that early diagnosis is important. There is a lot of steps that people need to, to take when they have that diagnosis toward making financial plans Um, other family dynamic plans. Yes, you know, we have some therapies and you want to be on them, but these other aspects could be just as important given the current landscape of pharmacological options. But hopefully soon it'll take a whole nother level um, with, with the need to rescue as much brain as possible, if you will. Right, right. We're drawing down out of time, but we had gotten into an interesting conversation in the lobby that I'm, I'm toying with bringing up because it might open a whole can of worms, but um, you are on the ethics committee, and I, I think it's really interesting, having been a former philosophy major and, and interested in biomedical ethics, uh, this question of of people entering studies, whether you tell them or not, there is a you know high probability that they have Alzheimer's and that effect on their life, um, if you know the mere suggestion of it can kind of hamper their life. What Can you talk just a little bit about some of the ethical questions, the big ethical questions that come up for you on the ethics committee in, in regard to Alzheimer's? Sure. So for the A4 study, which is this prevention trial that's ongoing now where we're looking for people who have normal memory, who are willing to have a, a, a brain scan that says whether they have elevated levels of this amyloid protein that accumulates in the plaques. There was substantial dialogue about whether we could, um, whether we should, and if we do how, we tell people the results of their amyloid PET scan. Mm -hmm. Now, very importantly, we cannot predict who will and who will not get Alzheimer's disease. Even in that study, if you meet the elevated amyloid criteria to enroll in the study, it doesn't mean you're going to get Alzheimer's disease. We just can't say that. We know that risk is increased in people who have elevated amyloid levels. So relative to someone who doesn't have elevated amyloid, someone with elevated amyloid is more likely to experience memory problems. Mm -hmm. But we certainly don't know who will and who will not. And again, I think I said this earlier, we don't know when memory problems will begin in the people in whom they do. So we really have more questions than answers at this point. But we have to do these studies to answer the questions. And... In A4, um, we were very careful to develop a process for sharing this information. And we only enroll people who are willing to learn it, perhaps even want this information. 
and who we're confident and they're confident that they can handle it. Um, and they also have to really demonstrate that they understand how little we know. Um, and the people who are in this study, again, they are, they are amazing individuals. And I am just so grateful and proud to have the opportunity to work with them. And when you enroll in this study, you're not a, a patient. You're the most important member of a research team. That's very neat. And That's a neat way to picture it. You know, they want to do this. They want to help. Many of them have a family history. Many of them are at least somewhat concerned about someday getting Alzheimer's disease themselves. They want to be a part of the solution. They want to help researchers take these next steps. They go into it with their eyes wide open, fully informed, of course. And um, they have very, very healthy attitudes about what they're doing. And it's it's really been a joy for me to, to, to do it with them. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Are there things we should have talked about that we didn't? Questions I should have asked that I didn't? I think you did a great job. I would love the opportunity to tell people that if you're listening and you're interested in helping us, um, if you're a whippersnapper of 89 or younger, you <laughs> should uh, call 949-824-3249. And for those who are the young age of 90 or older, the 90-plus study with Claudia Kawas is open to enrollment. And the phone number there is 949 768 3635. And for anything uh, related to research at UCI Mind, the website is a wonderful resource, and we try to make it a resource in many ways. And that website is www.mind.uci.edu or mind.uci.edu. And as you mentioned, you have a, a number of talks coming up, and so the, all those can be found on the website. That's correct. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, I, I uh, spent quite a lot of time on the website today, and it is, it's a fascinating wealth of information there. So I, I highly recommend that. Dr. Joshua Grill, congratulations Thank on you. joining the UCI team. There's no better place to live than Orange County, certainly, and, uh, and no better place to practice medicine than UCI. So that's uh, congratulations and welcome. And uh, that's all the time we have for today. Um, stay tuned for Counterspin coming up next on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and Real People of Orange County will always be back every Thursday at 4 o'clock. Um, Kimberly will be back next week. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a great night.